0: They've won both games they've played. So fire everybody, cut everybody, change everything, do away with... Is there any fan base anywhere like Steelers Nation that's so overwhelmingly, not universally, but overwhelmingly negative and filled with anger if there is i have not encountered it and hope never to good morning to you on that happy note good monday morning i'm dan kovacich of dk pittsburgh sports and this the newly reborn dk sports radio podcasting network if you're a subscriber to dk pittsburgh sports and i certainly hope that you are you can check out my rather lengthy Detailed and firsthand reporting-based column. I was at Heinz Field, asked a lot of questions after the game. Saw a lot of things that I liked, saw a lot of things that I didn't like. But there's nothing that I like less, or that I understand less than the vicious nasty criticism that follows wins from some people in this fan base. And, and some of it, look, is just purely aimed at at Mike Tomlin. He's just never going to be good enough for some people. Whatever he did in terms of playoff success was too long ago for some people, and they just legitimately don't like him. Other people don't like him for reasons that I'm not prepared to discuss on this segment i hope that's a very small minority but my goodness it just doesn't stop it doesn't stop if the steelers had beaten the broncos yesterday by a count of 50 to nothing as opposed to 26 to 21 you still would have had somebody calling out and isolating on that failed challenge you still would have had somebody just lasered in on the excessive use of four wideouts instead of the fullback in the fourth quarter. Look, there are legit criticisms. In the column that I wrote, I outlined them specifically. There are things that you can say in a very fair context about this head coach, about his coordinators, about the players. That's not what I'm talking about. Criticism is criticism. This is something else. I don't get this. I don't get this, or I don't want to get this, because it's so nasty and so consistent that on those occasions, when the Steelers lose... They lose. They haven't lost yet this season, but they will. These same people are joyful. It's like they're triumphant. And then when you challenge them and you say, what's wrong with you? If you're not a fan of this team, why are you investing this much emotion, this much energy in it? What are you doing here? You know, find a team you like. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Or if you've just given up on sports altogether, if sports or a specific team or a specific head coach make you that unhappy, go find another hobby. It makes no sense to me. In this column, I ran through a whole list of variables in this game that I thought the Steelers could have addressed better. And I also underscored and highlighted some things that I thought went really well. I hope you have a chance to read it. The one that jumped out at me from the positive perspective, unquestionably, was the offensive line. I did not expect that, to say the least. Uh, I went into this expecting not very good things, particularly from the right side of the line. Chuk Socorafor was making a start for the first time. He's, he's seen some time in the NFL at right tackle, but this was different. He knows Zach Banner's done for the year. He knows that job is his now. He knows he has to perform. He has to protect the franchise quarterback. It's a totally different dynamic than what Chooks has been used to in the past. And, of course, just to his left, at right guard, filling in for David DeCastro, was the rookie, Kevin Dotson. Rookie. No preseason games, no nothing. And there he was out there. And you know what? By all accounts, at least from the live viewing, and that's not always the most accurate way to judge offensive line work, he did fine. He did fine. I mean, if the film shows something differently, I'll be surprised. But to this eye and to seeing how how clean Ben was mostly kept, he was sacked once and another time he took a really hard hit when Alejandro Villanueva, completely blanked out over at left tackle and picked up nobody. And Mark Barron, the former Steeler, came blitzing up the middle, knocked him down. Of course, that also was the 84-yard touchdown pass to Chase Claypool. So Ben got himself a nice consolation out of it. Offensive line did well. Hats off. Good for them. The secondary of the defense was my biggest minus Um, I don't know if that's going to be a commonly held view. uh, Mostly because it's, ooh, it's not the coaches who we hate. But there are players on the field who are more than adept. And who have a history of a lot of pass defense. A lot of interceptions. A lot of just solid coverage. And... They had their passes defense. I mean, they had nine, which is a great number in a game. And they, of course, had Joe Hayden's interception, which was on the planned coverage. There was a safety in front, Hayden in the back. They had it sandwiched. That said, it was still uh, a very unattractive drop, isn't the right word. The ball went right through the hands of the. Denver receiver and right into Joe Hayden's hands. But, you know, a pick is a pick. Overall, I didn't like their coverage. I didn't like the way they kept up with Denver's receivers. The Broncos were short of a few weapons, notably at quarterback once Drew Locke went out. And then they ended up losing their receivers uh, notably, Jerry Judy, who was really good, the rookie out of Alabama, I thought, early in the game. But they didn't do enough. Now, can you excuse them to an extent because they spent so much time at the line of scrimmage, especially Mike Hilton? Mike Hilton might as well have been like lined up like Kevin Green used to, just that one-dimensional player that just chases after the quarterback. That's how often he was in the Denver backfield. But as everyone saw, the Steelers ended up winning the game, sealing the game on Terrell Edmonds, being a guy right up at the line, blitzing, and recording the 11-yard sack that turned the ball over on downs. I was happy for Terrell. I, I This kid, I keep telling you this, he's... He's somebody that you'd like and you'd respect if you got to know him a little bit. Uh, He's been focused maybe too much, but on trying to create some splash. He's on a defense that does splash. That's what they do. They take some risks. They take gambles. They go after the QB the way they did yesterday, and they're going to get burned. But Terrell did it, and yeah, he went unblocked, but he got back there, and he did the job. Here's what he had to say when I brought it up. Man, it felt great. Um, I knew I could do it. I'm just still out here. I'm going hard every day in practice. And when the time presents itself, go out there and make a play. Um, my teammates, they know I can make the play. So we're just going out there. We're playing our football. And anyone on the defense can make a play anytime. But that opposing time, it was me. So thankful for it. Nice, right. Good, Good for him. Good for him. I'm sure there are Steelers fans who are happy for him. I'm sure there are Steelers fans who are happy, like happy people in general. And again, I don't mean to paint everybody with the same brush. I'm also sure there are people that are really, really miserable human beings in life, let alone being football fans. I didn't like what I saw of the secondary I have faith that they'll get better because they've been better. Joe Hayden won't give up the deep ball the way he did yesterday. Steven Nelson won't be anywhere near as soft as he was in one-on-one coverage yesterday. Minka Fitzpatrick has yet to really have his presence felt through these first two games. And this game, maybe unlike the Giants game and some of the games that ended the last regular season... He had opportunities to make a difference, and, and and he really didn't. Terrell Edmonds, he got beat a couple of times, but he also ended up making a couple of good plays, and of course the big one again at the end. And Mike Hilton, to his credit, in addition to all the quarterback hits and sacks and everything else that he had up front, he also made a tremendous pass defense defense. Uh, arguably the best of the game by either team deep downfield in the fourth quarter that I was more impressed by than anything because it just shows how versatile he is and just what a natural football player he is. They all can be better. It's a good secondary. It's a talented secondary. It's a secondary that's obviously armed enough to be up at the line and make other kinds of impact, but ultimately they have to cover better than they did yesterday. There, was that, like, negative enough? Do I get, like, bonus marks or something like that for that? Ugh. I was going to do all three segments on football, but no. I'm just going to switch up after this. I hope you have a chance to go read the column. I find it fair. I'm sure other people will find it to be all happy and Pollyanna and whatever. There's nothing that can be done for that. Promised. The Pirates lost yesterday to the Cardinals 2-1 at PNC Park. Joe Musgrove pitched a lot better in putting up 6 zeros, And Derek Holland, who is terrible at pitching, came in and gave up a two-run homer to Yadier Molina to account for St. Louis's winning runs. And yippee! Uh, the Pirates have... Seven more games left on their schedule beginning tonight at 7.05 against the Cubs, also at PNC Park. They'll finish up next weekend up in Cleveland. This portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by the personal injury law firm of Luxembourg, Garbutt, Kelly, and George. They represent people who are hurt in car accidents, people with workers' comp cases, people with medical malpractice claims. The attorneys at LGKG pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. It's important to them that when they make you a promise, they keep it. They've been doing that for 80 years. LGKG has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, and Elwood City, but you can find out everything that you need to know about them Online at lgkg.com or by giving them a call. I'm going to give you the number twice. 888-842-5454. That's 888-842-5454. But my baseball thoughts scattered as they are these days with the Pirates just a week away from being done mercifully with this twenty. season, go back to Saturday night at PNC Park when Mitch Keller was throwing a no-hitter through six innings. And by the time he got through four or five, definitely in the sixth, I'm cringing. I'm cringing. Not because I think he's going to blow the no-hitter. He never had a chance at a no-hitter. But because I'm picturing someone somewhere is going to be really, really irrationally upset when he's not allowed to finish this thing. So I'm kind of, in a backward way, pulling for one of the Cardinals to just drop one in somewhere so that we can avoid that. No such luck. No such luck. Six innings expire. Derek Shelton... Walks over to Keller, tells him something he already knew, which is that he wasn't continuing. And, oh no, there it came. And every medium available. Anyone who was watching this game, particularly those who... Don't watch the Pirates on a regular basis, but I guess just happened to be going through the channels that night and came across baseball or heard that somebody had a no-hitter going on. What's going on? How do you take that? What This is a terrible manager and Nolan Ryan and Bob Gibson and this and that and everything else. Let's clear a couple things up. First, in terms of facts, Keller has spent most of this season on the injury list. In his second start of the season, he pulled an oblique muscle in his left side. You can say that's not an arm injury, but as any pitcher who has ever pitched at any level of pitching can attest, Any upper body injury that you have risks doing something negative to your arm because it's going to mess with your motion. It's going to mess with your delivery. And whether you're thinking about it or not, your arm is going to adjust funny and you risk a far more serious injury. Okay? This was Keller's second start back from being off the injury list for more than six weeks. Second start back. When a player returns from an extended absence, that player is always assigned a highly specific program by the team's medical staff and by the athletic trainers. When it's a pitcher, that involves rigid pitch counts. These are not arbitrarily up to the manager. In fact, they're not up to the manager at all. At all. It's not 1950 anymore. It's just not how it works where the manager just says, you know what, let's let him tough it out. The manager is told, not advised, not recommended, told before the game, this pitcher is not to go more than this many pitches. Now, understanding that a pitcher is in a situation where, you know, he has a batter at the plate or he has, uh, you know, an inning that he can go into, it doesn't have to be exactly that pitch. It's not weird. But the manager is given a range. And that manager is ordered, ordered to adhere to it. A few years back, some of you might remember this, the Pirates fired, this was under Neil Huntington and Kyle Stark, a minor league manager who didn't listen to them and their pitch count, and he was off by less than five. Five. Why? Because the pitcher was coming back from an injury. The manager prioritized the situation over the health of the player. Dude was fired. On the spot, they called him on the phone and told him he was fired, like he's sitting in his office, and they told him he was fired from afar. That's how seriously this is being taken. It's not up to the manager. So anybody who was waving their fists at Derek Shelton and thinking, that wow, you know, it's a no-hitter. Let the kid tough it out. Let the kid feel good. Let me feel good because I'm watching this and it's been such a miserable season and I was finally into something. doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. None of this is remotely relevant compared to the health of the pitcher. And you should say that evenly about all pitchers, whether they're old journeymen who stink, or, in this case, the only pitching prospect in the entire organization. Meaning Keller. It's like, this is only the most valuable arm they have from top to bottom in the entire organization. And people were angry that in his second start back from an extended stay on the injury list, he wasn't allowed to go out there and throw 100, 120, whatever many pitches it would have taken so that they could have an hour of entertainment on their TV sets. Let's get rid of a couple perceptions now. Those were the facts. Here are a couple perceptions that linger out there that drive me nuts. Pitchers are not less tough than they used to be. I hear this one all the time. That's why I made the crack about Nolan Ryan and Bob Gibson and Sandy Koufax and everybody else who used to throw 130 pitches and they were at when men were men and everything else. It's all nonsense. The biomechanics of baseball have changed, and they have changed significantly. Players back then weren't capable of throwing anywhere near as hard as they are now. I know you hear tales about it. I know so-and-so says that somebody was able to throw 100, 105 miles an hour. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. All you have to do is watch the video, whether it's black and white, whether it's brown and white. Watch the video. That baseball is not arriving at anywhere near the velocity of what even an ordinary pitcher throws today. Dave Littlefield, when he was the general manager, I don't know how I remember stuff like this. This goes back to, like, obviously many, many years ago, once told me in Anaheim on a Sunday morning, he was talking about this, about pitcher's health and everything that's been learned over the years. And again, this was more than a decade ago. And he said something to me that will always stick with me. He said a pitcher does things that the human body is not meant to do i'd never really thought of it that way as he kept going he said the human body is not meant to throw overhand now maybe someday if we all developed into some kind of you know super advanced race where Everyone had to throw overhand in order to survive in nature. You know, like if that was how you had to, like, catch food or something. We all would have gotten really great at throwing overhand, and we would have gradually developed the muscles and the ligaments. And, of course, those who were not adept at throwing overhand would have been weeded out, nature running its course it would have just been the overhand specimens of humans who would have survived. Well, guess what? That never happened. What did happen was huge advancements in baseball pitching biomechanics, players becoming better conditioned than ever before, and players being able to routinely now throw into the mid-90s, upper 90s. It's not a big deal when they do it anymore. It's not even a big deal when they hit 100. Guess what hasn't kept up with that? Ligaments. Shoulder muscles. These things go wrong. They're not meant to withstand this action that pitchers are taking. So on one hand, we want them to throw harder. We want them to throw faster. We want them to use more off-speed stuff because it's... Uh, So effective and so deceiving to the hitter, but at the same time, the off-speed stuff is what wears on the elbow ligaments. The curveballs and so forth really wears on the elbow ligaments. Elbow ligaments have not gotten stronger. You know why? Ligaments can't be strengthened. It doesn't happen. Muscles can. Ligaments can't. When they go, they go. So the only solution that's happened, the only solution that's been put in place of any kind has been trying to measure how many pitches are thrown. Because that's the one controllable variable, and even that, as we've seen, doesn't work. It's not that effective. It works better than if you didn't have pitch counts but it's not perfect. Here's another one. There's a perception that, well, if you let them throw more often, they get stronger. Yeah, they get stronger and then, as a result, they can just pitch more. No. No, no, no. Of course you can make an arm stronger, but you can't make a ligament stronger. It's just a ligament. It doesn't have degrees of strength. It has degrees to which it is not torn but it doesn't have degrees of strength. You can't work out a ligament. You know, you can't just, here, I'm going to pump some iron here and make my ligaments stronger. It doesn't work like that. Drives me nuts. You can tell this drives me nuts, right? And people were complaining that this kid, this 24-year-old kid who's the future of the rotation, and instead of just enjoying how well he pitched, And the fact that out of his four starts that he's been limited to, his first start in St. Louis, which I covered out there that that Sunday game where he mowed down the Cardinals, and this one were excellent. They're exactly what you'd hope for this young man to be able to carry into an offseason after a season that's meant completely nothing to the team as a whole. And after this stupid game and everybody's getting mad that he gets... Uh, He gets taken out of the game and the bullpen comes in and blows it. Who cares? You know? I mean, this is nothing compared to the health of this pitcher. And then we start spouting incorrect stuff about a manager and ridiculous stuff about the macho-ness of current modern baseball. I'm not sure why this is. Maybe it's that younger fans have largely tuned baseball out, so those of us who've been watching baseball for a much longer time are still stuck in ideas from 15, 20 years, even longer ago, and can't get them out of our heads or won't accept them. Baseball pitching is a precarious thing. There's nothing else like it. In sports, there's not another position where you go in pretty much knowing that there's one specific body part that when it goes, you're going to be out for a year and a half. That's what pitching's about. People are trying to navigate that. Responsible, educated, studious, conscientious, intelligent people are working to make pitching safer for pitchers. Outdated, inaccurate perceptions, misperceptions, don't help anything. When we come back, hockey. Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final is tonight in Edmonton. Game 1 was taken by the Dallas Stars 4-1 over the Tampa Bay Lightning. And don't let the Lightning's late surge, the 22-2 shots advantage they had in the third period fool you. The Stars had this game under wraps from the very beginning. They were much better than Tampa. I don't know that that'll continue consistently through this series. The Lightning are very deep and have a lot of talent, and they've got plenty of moxie of their own, but but I'm happy to keep repeating that the Stars have kind of been my team since the beginning of these playoffs. Uh, I didn't predict them to win the cup until after they won the first round, which is really lame, but Whatever, right? (laughs) I've liked what I've seen of them and have made special mention of them all along, so maybe that counts for something. This segment of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. In normal times, one in seven people in our region are in need of food, including one in five children. So now imagine what that is during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are in need of food assistance or if you would just like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, do so by visiting pittsburghfoodbank.org online. Spell out those first three words, no abbreviations, pittsburghfoodbank.org. One dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. Before game one, Gary Bettman and his deputy, Bill Daly, held their Annual, if somewhat significantly delayed, pre Stanley Cup final press conference up there. Of course, everything was done by Zoom. And one question must have comprised probably 90% of that press conference because it just kept getting asked in a different way When is next season going to start? When is it going to start? When is it going to start? Uh, Do you need for fans to be in the building for it to start? Do you need the building to be full for it to start? How will your team survive not having fan revenue if you start without fans? Bettman became predictably and visibly agitated. Uh, He's like that, just a baby in press conference settings. It's hard to describe unless you've seen one, or or in my case, uh, experienced more than a few of them. Just a child with how he acts, huffing and puffing and looking over to his right and saying, Bill, can you believe this? And Bill, you want to take this one? He couldn't believe that reporters had the audacity to ask questions about when the next season starts. I think he thought everybody was going to show up there and just ask, you know, Uh, happy stuff about the stars and the lightning and whatever else. And most of the reporters who are on this call, if you think about it, don't cover those two teams. They want to know when their teams are going to start playing. His answer, the short version, was, if I know I'm not telling you. He didn't actually say that. I'm paraphrasing somewhat cynically here. Uh, Bettman and Daly found a hundred different ways to say that they're not certain at all of how it's going to go, but Bettman did let spill that it's possible that they won't start on December 1. December 1 is the date that's been floated everywhere for a while. Even Jim Rutherford recently expressed some skepticism about that. If you think about the situation, there won't be any kind of bubble. You've got 31 teams. You can do different things to adjust the schedule, keep the Eastern teams in the East and stuff like that, but you can't be doing anything remotely resembling a bubble. So teams are going to have to play in their own buildings. And depending on what the local-slash-state-slash-provincial regulations are, that'll dictate how many fans can or can't come into a building. But it's not even that simple. It's not even that clear. Remember, we've got seven Canadian franchises in the league and a completely rock-solid closed border. If coronavirus makes any kind of additional surge, and a lot of people are expecting that because it would come twinned with the flu and then there's some doomsday stuff about that and we'll see how it goes. But then you're talking about, you know, not doing anything or taking steps backward from where we are even now. We can look and admire and see that the NFL has, you know, put at least a handful of thousand... People into a, an open air stadium, but that's not the same situation as the NHL playing in enclosed arenas in the winter during conventional flu season, in which people are going to be more liable to be, you know, coughing and sneezing and rubbing their noses and everything else. And here, here I go into epidemiology again. The The NHL's outlook for a season for 2020-21 is excellent. They will have one. I have no doubts about that based on everything that I heard from those two guys on Saturday. But on top of that, and way more important, stuff that I have read about the state of vaccines, of treatment for the coronavirus, which nobody ever talks about. Everybody talks about the vaccine, but there's ways to actually treat it when you get it and nullify The symptoms and ultimately keep people from dying. That also can happen. I have no doubt that there will be an NHL season. What I don't see, and I think that's why Bettman was dropping this hint as a December one start. uh, It's just it's too soon and too close to the projected dates for when the first waves of a vaccine would go out and be available. Because it's not just about finding the vaccine. It's not just about identifying the right one. There's all kinds of complications related to uh, shipping it. It has to be done in sub-86 degrees Celsius temperatures, and they don't have anywhere near, meaning they, the big mythical they, the kind of equipment, the transport, to ship multiple gazillion vials of this stuff to where it needs to go smartly, safely, and efficiently. There isn't even the funding yet from the federal government for it, as the head of the CDC blurted out the other day, meaning to mass-produce the vaccine. So, who knows? Who knows? Maybe... There will be all kinds of advancements. Maybe there will be some kind of regression. We just don't know. And that was actually, uh, in fairness to Bettman and Daly, that was the the correct and fair and right overriding theme to what they said. They just didn't have to be, well, Bettman in particular. Daly's always pretty cool. But Bettman didn't have to be a, bleh, I don't have clean words for it, whatever he was that day at the press conference. Bottom line. Um, If we have hockey again before Christmas, uh, I'll be surprised. I-, I could see this being something that pushes a little bit into the early part of next year. Uh, as Bettman did say, one thing the NHL is very, very open to is that if they start one way, they don't necessarily have to continue that way. Meaning if they start with a severely limited number of fans, so they start... Uh, with no fans at all, or whatever, it doesn't mean they're married to doing it that way the whole way through. The way we've just seen, by the way, with baseball. Baseball made a firm commitment: 60 games, no fans. That's that. Uh, I think it'll be closer to what the NFL's approach is, which is let's just play every single situation, every single week, right here. Nonetheless, gonna be a while. We're not gonna see hockey again for several months. So hey, at least you had those four games in August, right? Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.